Hey everybody and welcome back to another episode of the Open Forum podcast. Today we have with us John Kiriakou. John is a former CIA analyst and case officer, eventually over the course of his 14-year career becoming the chief in counter-terrorism operations uh, in the Pakistan office uh, after the 2001 uh, landscape. And over the course of his 14-year career, he is the only person from the CIA who was convicted for crimes related to torture. And I want to be very clear here, not as a result of carrying out torture, not as a result of uh, approving torture, but actually for blowing the whistle on the torture program that was greenlit by the government and was part of the CIA's uh, response as to interrogation. Um, but after that, uh, 23 months of prison, uh, he came out and himself, uh, worked on a podcast, worked in consulting, and also is currently the host of the uh, Political Misfits show on Sputnik Radio, which, as I mentioned to John, is something that in the Netherlands, at least, if you want to listen to it on Sputnik, you actually have to use a VPN to get around that. Or there's Rumble, which I uh, only figured out in the last week. But John, look, enough about me. Uh, that's a very brief sort of one minute intro into who you are. Maybe you can take two, three minutes. Tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll just dive on in. Sure. Uh, wow, where do I start? Uh, I'm I'm just a normal, average uh, guy. Grew up in CIA guy. Yeah. Ex CIA guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, grew up in Western Pennsylvania. Wanted to go into public service. Wanted to see the world, and uh, was recruited by the CIA when I was in graduate school at George Washington University here in Washington. Uh, spent the first half of my career as an analyst, uh, working exclusively on Iraq. Uh, then I switched, I made an unusual switch to counterterrorism operations, uh, primarily because I was the only person in the entire CIA who spoke both Greek and Arabic fluently. And so I first went to Greece as a counterterrorism officer, uh, back to headquarters, then back to the Middle East again, and then after 9-11, uh, over to Pakistan as the head of counterterrorism operations. With that said, um, I've always uh, been a very firm and strong believer in both human rights and in the rule of law. And we have very specific laws governing the treatment of people, including people we don't like, people whose politics we don't agree with. Those uh, laws and their rights were being violated after 9-11, all in the name of security, which is sort of a catch-all when a government wants to do something that is so foul that they can't even let their own people know. And um, and I blew the whistle on the CIA's torture program in December of 2007. Four years later, I was arrested and charged with five felonies, including three counts of espionage for going public about the torture program. The espionage charges ended up being dropped, but uh, that didn't keep me from doing 23 months in a federal prison. Uh, you know, it's funny, my detractors say, well, you never expressed any remorse, nor will I ever express any remorse. Uh, I'm glad that I did with what I did. Somebody had to say something. Uh, Senator John McCain, just six weeks before I was released from prison, got up on the floor of the Senate and said that I should never have been arrested in the first place, that the country owed me a debt of gratitude because had I not said anything, the American people would not have known what our government was doing in our name. So all worth it. Uh, it's funny, too, because I had a very good career, a very um, upwardly mobile career at the CIA. And uh, 
And I was perfectly willing to give it up. And I like what I do now, sort of pseudo journalism. I have a radio show every day. I have a television series once a week. I do some consulting in Hollywood on movies and TV series. I have a column that runs in 220 small town papers around the country. So, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. And, uh, and you put together a decent living. Keeping busy, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, I am. So before we get on to, to 2001 and sort of your background in, in getting over to Pakistan, mm -hmm. one of the interesting things that you said there is you were the only person in the CIA uh, around the mid-90s that was able to speak both Greek and Arabic. Now, um, Greece is somewhere that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, was somewhere where training and recruitment was being done for people, right? Not there with regards to the CIA, but that was the reason that you were stationed there as there were some um, extremist groups that yeah. were converging the, there. The Greece, the Greece of the 1990s uh, is not the Greece of 2022. Uh, the Greece of the 1990s was a, was a way station for every Arab terrorist group you can imagine. They all had a presence there, and many of them had training facilities there. The Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the PFLP General Command, the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine, Abu Nidal Organization, any one of a myriad of Libyan groups, uh, they were they were all there. And, you know, there were always these rumors that the former Greek government of Andreas Papandreou, the socialist government, had this agreement with these groups that if you don't kill Greeks, you can come and go as you please. Well, that worked for a little while. And then they started killing each other, which was just as bad. On top of that, um, there were Greeks going to training facilities in Lebanon, in the Beka Valley, and in uh, Libya that were run by these groups. And then they were returning to Greece and carrying out terrorist attacks in the name of, of two groups, uh, Revolutionary Organization 17 November and Popular Revolutionary Struggle. Uh, they killed a lot of people, dozens of, of people and wounded hundreds. And so, you know, one of the little known facts of that period was that the United States spent more money on embassy security in Athens than they spent in any other city in the world, including Beirut, where our embassy had been blown up twice. So Jeez. we took we took security in Greece very, very seriously back then. Yeah, and um, I've uh, heard you mention before, actually, you were one of the few people that would ride around in an armored car, right? Uh, which potentially uh, may have saved your bacon. Uh, but... One of the interesting points that I've also heard you make is there weren't very many Arabic uh, speakers in general in the CIA, which I also find baffling due to the fact that is the word. Yeah, because because yeah. who are we kidding? The CIA helped to to fund the Mujahideen, right? Sure. That it it has a wealthy past, shall we say, in in helping to get arms that way. Uh, it also has uh it's pause over things like the arab spring and, and other little bits and bobs here and there uh uprisings in iraq uprisings across other middle eastern countries so given the fact that they did or do 
so much work there, given the fact that part of the reason that Saudi Arabia became the country it became even in the 70s was because of US intervention in some way, shape or form. Uh, I, I'm sure you're probably familiar with the name John Perkins, former chief economist at Chasty Maine, yes. spoken to him on the show as well. Okay. Um, so, so you know, the, the, the CIA's maneuverability around the Middle East, uh, around those oil-rich countries is a prolific one. Mm-hmm. How is it that they had so few people who who could speak and understand Arabic because yeah that in a way adds to the tripping over of all the intelligence information between NSA CIA FBI of what happened in 2001 and what ended up shaping that um those final years of your career in essence mm-hmm. uh, there there were a couple of reasons um short-sightedness um arrogance uh, when you're in one of the Gulf countries, for example, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, Oman, the United Arab Emirates, everybody, literally everybody speaks English. And so it's more expedient just to send people over there with no uh, language background. But then how do you really get into society? How do you get to understand society and put the Gulf aside? What do you do if you're stationed in Jordan or in Palestine or in Libya or, or even Egypt? You have to you have to know the language. Otherwise, you can't really understand what's going on in a society. So arrogance and expediency uh, were, were two of the reasons. Uh, another reason was, you know, you train somebody, send them to language school here in the United States, then you send them to the region for a second year of language, and then they do their two or three year tour, and then they resign and go to Exxon or BP or something like that, where they can make real money for a change. Because yep. God knows you don't join the CIA for the money. So uh, that that is an ongoing problem. I think the biggest problem, though, was just this institutionalized belief that that languages weren't necessary, especially hard languages. You know, in my own Arabic class, I, I went into full-time Arabic in, uh, let me think, the last week of August of 1993. And there were only six of us. For the whole CIA, there were six of us learning Arabic. And when I graduated, I learned that there were only 16 Arab speakers, Arabic speakers in the entire CIA. That's just unacceptable, unacceptable. And so when I applied for this job in Athens, I went down, it was, it was, the job was hosted by the counterterrorism center. I went down to speak to the, to the uh, senior officer who was in charge of hiring. And I said, listen, I want to apply for this job in Athens because it said either Arabic or Greek strongly preferred. And I said, I speak Arabic and Greek fluently, but I don't have any operational experience whatsoever. He didn't believe that I spoke the languages. So he asked me if I was willing to be tested. I said, of course. I said, I I just tested in Arabic a week ago, but I'll retest if you want me to. And it turned out that not only was his secretary ethnically Greek, but she was born in Greece on the island where my grandparents came from. (laughs) (laughs) And so she came out, we had a quick conversation in Greek, and she said, he gets the thumbs up from me. And he said, how recent are your uh, Arabic scores? I said, a week ago. And I showed him, you know, I tested fluent. And so he said, well, it's a lot easier and a lot cheaper for us to take a linguist and teach him operations than it is to take an operations officer and teach him how to speak Greek and Arabic. And they gave me the job. 
Jeez. So for me, it was kind of, I've always had a, I've always had a facility for languages. They've yeah. always been easy for me. Um, and, and that's how I made the transition into operations. Okay. And then you were in Greece, I think for a couple of years yes. and then, um, 9-11, 2001, September yeah. 11th happens. Yeah. And, uh, can you talk to us a little bit about that and what your next steps were there? Yeah. So 9-11 takes place. I was in headquarters at the time. I was supposed to go to the White House this morning with the head of counterterrorism, Ambassador Cooper Black. Um, and I walked over to his office to tell him that our car was ready. It was waiting to take us downtown. And his secretary had a small TV on her desk. And one of the World Trade Center towers was burning. I said, what happened to the World Trade Center? And she said, oh, a, a plane flew into it. And I said, a plane flew into it. It's so clear today, I said, how can you not see that you're flying into the World Trade Center? And as soon as those words came out of my mouth, the second plane hit the second tower. And she turned and looked at me and she said, did you see that or did I imagine it? And I ran back to my office. I said, guys, I think we're under attack. Two planes just hit both towers of the World Trade Center. That was a really bad day inside the CIA. And um, we were ordered to evacuate because there was still a plane in the air and we didn't know if it's gonna hit us or the White House or the Capitol. We, so we evacuated grudgingly. In fact, the security officers that came to our, our office said that if we didn't evacuate, we would be arrested because when they ordered the evacuation, nobody left. So we all evacuated. I had to abandon my car halfway home and I just walked the rest of the way along with 50,000 other people walking from the White House and the State Department and the Pentagon, which by then was on fire. And um, and then I went back a few hours later and, and didn't leave for four days. I just, uh, you know, slept under my desk and um, and worked all the time. Almost immediately, like everybody else in the building, I volunteered to go to Afghanistan. And I kept saying that my Arabic is excellent, right? We've got to be capturing these, these guys hand over fist. And my Arabic is excellent. Excellent. Certainly you need interrogators. And I was ignored. And I volunteered three times and was ignored all three times. Finally, the deputy director of counterterrorism was an old friend of mine. I had worked for him. And I went into his office and I said, listen, if you don't send me to Afghanistan right now, I am going to walk straight to Exxon with my Arabic and I am not looking back. What I didn't know at the time was they weren't capturing people. They were just killing them. Uh, I ran into a legendary figure in the hall, uh, a, a contractor uh, uh, who, who had, he had won, he had won 17 purple hearts, which is one short of the, uh, of the, the record, record here in the United States. He, yeah. he had fought in the Second World War, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War. Billy Waugh was his name. And um, he and I had worked closely together in uh, in the Middle East. And I ran into him. I hadn't seen him in like six weeks. And I said, hey, Billy, where have you been? And he said, I've been in Afghanistan. I said, really? What are you doing in Afghanistan? And he looked at me like I was crazy. And he said, I've been killing people. What do you think I've been doing? And I realized that that's why they hadn't sent me. They didn't need linguists. They weren't interrogating anybody. They were just killing them. And so finally, my former boss said, all right, all right. 
can you go to Pakistan? I said, yes. When? He said, tomorrow. I said, done. What do you want me to do there? He said, I want you to be the head of counterterrorism operations. I said, done. So I called my then girlfriend. She became my wife a year later. And I said, I got to go to Pakistan tomorrow. And I don't know when I'll be back. And she said, okay, I'll meet you at your place and I'll help you pack. So she came to my apartment that evening. We packed. The next morning I flew to Pakistan and and I was there for seven months, I guess it was. Yeah. And, and then during your time there, something happened. You guys had what was thought of at the time as a big break. Uh, the perception was that you had captured the number three in the whole of al-Qaeda. So this would have been bin Laden's number three guy, you know, essentially his right-hand man or left-hand man. Um, that later came out to not quite be all it was painted up to be. Correct. Um, can you maybe talk to us a little bit about that? And then right. we'll, we'll talk about what happened to Abu Zubaydah after that. Right. I was uh, in Pakistan for two weeks and we got word that Abu Zubaydah was somewhere in the country. And the CIA was convinced that Abu Zubaydah was the number three in Al-Qaeda. We knew that bin Laden was number one. We knew that Ayman al-Zawahedi was number two. And we knew that Mohammed Atef had been number three. His title was Director of Military Affairs. We killed him in Tora Bora in October of 2001. So we believed that, that uh, Abu Zubaydah was the number three. That turned out to not be true. Not only was it not true, but Abu Zubaydah had never formally joined Al-Qaeda. He had never pledged fealty to Osama bin Laden. Uh, more damaging, and I wrote a book um, uh, about this later on with uh, Joseph Hickman, who was one of the guards at Guantanamo. Uh, there were two Abu Zubaydahs. There was the Abu Zubaydah that we captured and a first cousin of his also named Abu Zubaydah. And so we had files on both of them, not realizing that it was two different people. So on paper, he looked like a terrorist Superman. The Abu Zubaydah that we were after had founded the House of Martyrs, Al-Qaeda safe house in Peshawar, Pakistan, and had, um, and had created al-Qaeda's two training camps in southern Afghanistan, one in Kandahar, the other in Helmand province. And that was pretty much it. If, if you needed uh, some sort of logistical help, you needed money or a ticket home, you would go to Abu Zubaydah. But the number three in al-Qaeda, it just wasn't true. We ended up catching him in late March of, of 2002, and it was all downhill from, from there for him. Now, we touched on it earlier, the importance of having people that spoke Arabic um, within the CIA. And actually, uh, from listening to, to that book that you've done, that you just mentioned, one of the things that you guys mentioned within that book was the fact that this is essentially a failure of the intelligence to pick up on the, the, the difference in language that uh, you had in Arabic with regards to the name Abu Zubaydah and the... Um, the different ways that it could be spelt, the different meanings that these had and the different implications of this. Uh, yes. You put it way more succinctly, succinctly <laughs> than that in the book, but short story long, that that was kind of it. So with yes. that being said, you have yet again another failure of intelligence there. Very much so. 
And failure this... of intelligence that ruined a man's life. Yeah. Remember that Abu Zubaydah has he's been incarcerated. He's been in in U.S. custody uh, at at a series of secret prisons around the world where he was tortured mercilessly. And since 2006 at Guantanamo, and he's never been charged with a crime. Never. He's also not entirely innocent. Oh, no, no, no. He's a bad guy. That picture. Correct. He's a bad guy. But, you know, we have we have lost. Fair trial was meant to be. And and this is one of the things that, uh, again, something you've uh, mentioned before, George Washington said, we don't torture uh, our enemies, even if they're our enemies. That's what the British were doing to the Americans and didn't want to stoop to that level. That's part of the reason why you guys have the laws that you have there. And I'm um, I'm a big fan of the U.S. Constitution, especially with things that have happened over the past few years. The U.S. Constitution is one of the things that's managed to keep some places quite free and open and honest, relatively speaking. Um, So, you know, being from the U.K. and sitting in the Netherlands, we've uh, had a bit of a different approach uh, across both of those countries, across the EU and all the rest of it. But with that said... Once he was captured, can you, can you maybe talk to us a little bit about the capture? What happened there? Because that yeah. also leads to a pretty rough story. Um, before we even mention the unauthorized medical treatments that he was given and the reason why he wears an eye patch, and all, all, but can you maybe talk to us about the capture element? Yeah, the capture was uh, extraordinary. Uh, we just could not narrow his possible location down to any fewer than 14 sites. Uh, it, 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 there's a long preamble to that, but we, we had an analyst come in to try to narrow it down and we just couldn't, we couldn't narrow it down to any fewer than 14 sites. So we flew in a huge team from the United States, half CIA, half, B, half FBI. We, uh, we coordinated very closely with the Pakistani intelligence service, the ISI and, um, and a group called the Punjab elite force, which was like a SWAT team, a, a quick reaction team. And we raided uh, 13 of the 14 sites. We dropped one because we realized it was a payphone at a shish kebab stand. So we raided 13 sites simultaneously at two o'clock in the morning uh, on the night of, I think it was March 22nd or March 28th. Now I can't remember anymore. And um, we captured many dozens of Al-Qaeda fighters. I'm still not allowed to say the, the exact number, but dozens and dozens of fighters. And in the best fortified safe house that we raided, we found Abu Zubaydah. He, his bodyguard, who was from Syria, and a Syrian bomb maker uh, fled to the roof of the house when we started to break down the door. They tried to jump to the roof of the neighboring house to escape. The bomb maker was killed instantly. He was shot by a Pakistani policeman after I had specifically said that we need to take everybody alive. Uh, Abu Zubaydah jumped second and was shot in the stomach, the groin, and the thigh with an AK-47. And the bodyguard jumped third and was shot in the leg with this AK-47. We rushed Abu Zubaydah to a hospital. That is a story in and of itself, um, not a good one. Uh, And then we put him on a helicopter a few hours later and flew him to a Pakistani military base where he underwent further surgery. I was instructed to not leave his bedside. So I was afraid I was gonna fall asleep. I had already been up for more than 24 hours. So I tore up a sheet, 
I tied him to the bed, arms and uh, wrists and ankles. And, um, and I just sat there and I waited for him to, uh, to wake up. He finally came out of his coma after about 24 hours and uh, panicked when he saw me. Panicked to the point where they had to shock him uh, to, uh, to get his heart beating properly again. Uh, they gave him some Demerol and he was out for another six hours. And then he finally woke up and um, tied to the bed. He motioned like this for me to come next to him. So I did, and I, I moved his oxygen mask over to the side. I said in Arabic, Shu'ismek, what is your name? And he shook his head. So I said it again, Shu'ismek. And he said to me in English, beautiful English, he said, um, I will not speak to you in God's language. I said, that's okay, Abu Zubaydah, we know who you are. And then he started crying, and he asked me to kill him. He asked me to smother him with a pillow. And I said, no, 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 nobody's going to kill you. We've been looking for you for a long time. And I said, uh, I said, you're going to get the best medical care that the American government can provide. He, got a he lot was more very than that. upset. Pardon me? He got a lot more than that. Jeez. Boy, did he. You know, in the beginning, well, the executive director of the CIA, which is the number three most senior officer in the CIA after the director and the deputy director, uh, happened to be on the board of directors of Johns Hopkins University Hospital in Baltimore. And so when I called headquarters and I said, look, he's been shot severely. He's bleeding to death. I don't know what to do besides rush him to this hospital. The executive director called Johns Hopkins and put their best trauma surgeon on the CIA's private jet. And he arrived in Pakistan 16 hours later to oversee the surgery. Jesus. So he really did get the best medical care that the U.S. government could provide, which was great in the first 48 hours. But like I said a moment ago, it all went downhill for him from, from there. So he asked me what was going to happen to him. And the the honest to God's truth was, was that I didn't know. I didn't know what was going to happen to him. And I told him that. I said, listen. I am the nicest guy that you're going to meet in this experience. My colleagues, they're not nice like I am. So if there's one thing that you do, it's that you have to cooperate. And he said, you seem like a nice man, but you're the enemy and I'll never cooperate. I said, well, suit yourself. I had never heard of so-called enhanced interrogation techniques. I had never heard of secret prisons, which at that point still didn't exist. Um, and then another day passed, that private jet arrived and three FBI agents and I carried his gurney out to the jet. He asked me to hold his hand. He was crying the whole time. So I held his hand, we maneuvered him onto the jet and, and we tied him down to the luggage rack in the back. And I leaned over and I said, remember, you have to cooperate. And he squeezed my hand. I wished him luck. And, uh, and I never saw him again. Now, as, as I was getting off the plane, there was, a, there was a team on the plane dressed completely in black with black hoods and masks. And uh, one of them said, John. And I said, who are you? And he lifted up his mask a little bit. And I recognized him as a former boss of mine. And uh, he said, who's your prisoner? He must be important if they brought us out. This was the rendition team. And I said, oh man, I'm so sorry. I'm not allowed to tell you who he is. 
he didn't have a need to know. And this was a very compartmentalized operation. So I said, where are you taking him? And he said, oh, buddy, I'm sorry. You don't have a need to know, which was true. I was not read into the compartment saying that we were opening these secret prisons, just like my old boss wasn't read into the compartment saying that we had a high value target uh, operation. And so it, it wasn't until months later when I returned to headquarters, I got promoted uh, based on the on the Abu Zubaydah capture, I became the executive assistant to the CIA's deputy director. And um, it was only then that I had access to literally everything that the CIA was doing around the world that I realized we've got a torture program, we have a, an international renditions program, we have an archipelago of secret prisons that were opening all over the world, none of which did I believe was legal uh, but that's the situation we found ourselves in in the summer of 2002. There's a couple, uh, a couple of things there. Now, um, you mentioned that uh, extraordinary rendition um, wasn't a thing prior, and that secret prisons weren't a thing prior. Also, now I find that pretty hard to stomach, given the CIA's prolific um, infamy. Uh, with the different programs that they have. Now, one of the things is that I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it was around the fall of 2002 where uh, George Bush had signed the, um, uh, what's it called? Enhanced interrogation. August right? 1st. August 1st. Okay, so it was okay, yeah. just before fall then. Mm -hmm. August 1st, he'd signed it. But uh, despite the fact that it was put into legislation that people wouldn't be able to be imprisoned as a result, there were indications that this was already happening. So this would then predate the summer of 2002. Correct. And when was it that you captured Abu Zubaydah? March, March. of 2002. So these things would have already have been happening. Yeah, and, and as fact, you mentioned, Joe, there were things that you weren't read into, and as we've seen from the Snowden files, there's a lot of things that happened that even people at the executive levels weren't quite aware of, and there have been further leaks for for different things. So it's one of those things that I I kind of have to push back in a sense of perhaps it was something you were unaware of at the time, but more than likely. It, it it was probably happening. Like Occam's razor in this case is probably wasn't anything new. It was probably well, just being passed around a bit more. We said in the book that there were indications that Abu Zubaydah's torture began well before August 1st mm. uh, and that it began in anticipation of George the W. Signing. Bush signing yeah. the executive order. Yeah. Um, secret prisons, there's never been any information that's come out saying that secret prisons existed before the one where Abu Zubaydah was initially brought. I'm not allowed to say where, but it's been reported on extensively in the media. Uh, now, in, and in many of those cases, perhaps most of those cases, um, even the presidents and prime ministers of those countries didn't know that there was a secret prison in their country. Hmm. These were handshake deals done between George Tenet, the CIA director at the time, and the director of those respective uh, intelligence agencies. So when 
when things started leaking to the media, um, really as early as uh, as the spring of 2003, these world leaders were saying, look, I don't know what you're talking about. We don't have any secret prison here. And they genuinely believed that they didn't. But these secret prisons existed in, what, a half a dozen different countries? At least. At least a half a dozen different countries. But then there's also the issue of the enhanced interrogation. And that was something that was brought to your attention, right? Something that you were actually offered to be a, a member of yeah. one of the first teams trained for. or In, in May of 2002. Official right. teams. Yes. Yeah. Or yeah. June June sixth, I think, is is the date that that I was. Yeah, I was just in the cafeteria, and a senior officer from the counterterrorism center uh, approached me in the cafeteria very casually, and said, "Oh, hey, I'm I'm so glad I ran into you. Do you want to be certified in the use of enhanced interrogation techniques?" I said, "What's that mean?" And he said, "We're going to start getting rough with these guys." And I said, "What do you mean rough?" And he described these techniques. I said, that sounds like a torture program. And he said, it's not torture. It was approved by the Justice Department and the president signed off on it. I said, let me think about it for a, for a little while. I went upstairs to the executive floor and spoke with, with a very, very senior CIA leader. I had worked for him in the Middle East 10 years earlier. I said, what do you think about this? They just approached me and asked me if I want to do this. And he was very clear. He said, look, let's call this what it is. It's a, it's a torture program. They can use whatever euphemism they want, but this is a torture program. And you know how these guys are, he said. Somebody's going to go overboard and they're going to kill the prisoner. And then there's going to be a congressional investigation. Then there's going to be a Justice Department investigation. And somebody's going to go to prison. Do you want to go to prison? I said, no, I don't want to go to prison. I went back downstairs and, and I said, this is a torture program and I don't want any part of it. I said, I have, a, I have a moral and ethical problem with it. And frankly, I think it's illegal. And so they asked 14 people in that first round. Two of us said no, and then one of the two changed his mind. So in the end, I was the only one who turned it down. I was actually passed over for promotion because of that. And then the deputy director promoted me out of cycle, uh, which was a very generous thing to do. Uh, the, the head of counterterrorism by then was the notorious... Jose Rodriguez, he said that I had uh, I had displayed a shocking lack of commitment to counterterrorism because I wouldn't torture as a beta. Basically, because you wouldn't follow orders, right? Yeah, you, that's you, what it was. Yeah, you know, they used to they used to call me the human rights guy behind my back, and I knew they were saying it, and I kind of thought it was funny. And finally, a friend of mine said, "Buddy, that's not a compliment." And I said, "No, I know, I know." But I'd rather be the human rights guy than the war criminal. So, you know, we all make our choices in life. Yeah. And the enhanced interrogation, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was 10 steps that you guys outlined, yes. right? Correct. Um, and what were those steps? And for the listeners as well, they were meant to go incrementally from one to 10, not correct. start halfway through. Could you maybe talk us through these? Right. So number one was uh, the attention grasp. So it would be you grab Abu Zubaydah by the shirt and give him a shake and say, answer my questions. All right. That's not really torture. But you see that, that in every movie. One. Yeah. 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 That was number one. Number two was the the belly slap. Right, it makes a loud cracking sound. It leaves a mark. It doesn't 
hurt that much, but you know, it's invasive. Number three was um, the slap across the face. So now, you know, the point is to humiliate, right? You give them a, an open-handed smack across the face. A bitch slap, let's call it what it is. A bitch right? slap, that's yeah, right. It was yeah. a bitch slap, yes. Yeah. And then you go to, um, you know, something called walling, for example, where you're supposed to roll up a towel, place the towel around the prisoner's neck so he doesn't get whiplash. And then you shove him hard into a wall that's made out of plywood. So it has a little bit of give. He hits his head in it, but the towel prevents any real damage. The problem is, the problem was that they didn't put a towel around Abu Zubaydah's neck. And the wall was made of concrete block rather than rather than plywood. And so he he received permanent brain injuries, you know, traumatic brain injuries. There was another prisoner who was the son-in-law of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, um, who was permanently uh, debilitated by having his head repeatedly slammed into the wall and is unable to participate in his own defense now at Guantanamo. So you know, they ignored, they ignored the rules that headquarters had so painstakingly uh, placed around, uh, around these techniques. Uh, other techniques were, were sleep deprivation. And, you know, the, the American Psychological Association, the APA, has deemed this to be a form of torture. What they would do is to strip the prisoner naked, chain him to an eye bolt in the ceiling so that he couldn't sit or lay or get comfortable in any way. And um, and have these industrial strength lights on him 24 hours a day and and death metal hard rock blaring 24 hours a day. With that said, the APA tells us that around day seven with no sleep, people begin to lose their minds. Around day nine, they begin to die because you're, you go into organ failure with nine days with no sleep. The CIA was authorized to keep prisoners awake for up to 12 days. So that was far more cruel than the CIA ever led on, uh, even internally at the beginning. Another one was the cold cell. We murdered people with this technique. You, you strip the prisoner naked again, you chain him to that eyeball in the ceiling again, so he can't get comfortable. You chill his cell to 50 degrees Fahrenheit. And then every hour, a CIA officer goes into the cell and throws a bucket of ice water on him. And like I say, we killed people with that technique, killed them with hypothermia. Uh, the technique that was supposed to be the worst was, uh, was waterboarding. So waterboarding, I mean, pretty much everybody knows what waterboarding is now. You're, you're strapped to a board. Your head is immobilized. Uh, material is placed over the mouth, like cloth, a towel, and then water is poured on the face. And it's supposed to give the sensation of drowning. Well, in the case of Abu Zubaydah, we did drown him. His heart stopped beating. He had to be revived by a doctor on site so that he could be tortured more later. Something that Dr. Mengele would have done during the Second World War. Yeah. You know, and there were other techniques like uh, forced nudity. Uh, we would we would uh, strip them naked and then leave them naked for months at a time, and then have them interrogated by women just to humiliate them. Yeah. Abu Zubaydah mentioned once during an interrogation that he had an irrational fear of insects. 
And so they, they stripped him naked. They put a diaper on him. They put him in a coffin for 11 days. And then they poured a box of cockroaches on top of him oh, and closed him in the coffin. Uh, they kept him for weeks inside a dog cage so that his muscles cramped to the point where he was nearly paralyzed. And then they did things that were never approved. They played Russian roulette with him. Uh, they used an electric drill and threatened to drill into his skull and give him a lobotomy. You know, things like that. They did even worse things with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. They threatened to rape his wives. They threatened to kill his children. None, none of those things were, were permitted by anybody, but they did it anyway, and no one was ever ever punished. Two questions. Um, now, one that uh, I think people unfamiliar with the situation may want to hear. Um, now, there must be a reason why torture is being done you know people need information there are lives at risk right. does torture in any way shape or form actually work no no, no torture does not work in in any way the prisoner is going to tell you eventually what you want to know but he's going to tell you a million other things just to get you to stop torturing him and then you have to spend six months dozen analysts pouring through all this information to see what's true and what's not true or what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. And then by then the bomb has gone off. The next attack has taken place and you've wasted all that time. Okay. Uh, listen, I hate the FBI and it kills me to have to compliment the FBI, but they know what they're doing when it comes to interrogations. The only way that you can successfully interrogate a prisoner, successfully collect actionable intelligence that that saves american lives and disrupts future attacks is to establish a rapport to establish a relationship with a prisoner over the course of time and to treat him with respect that's what the fbi did at nuremberg in 1945 and 1946 that's how they were able to get these germans to confess to war crimes that's how ali sufan from the fbi got abu zubaydah to give us actionable intelligence that really did disrupt attacks. Now, the reason why the CIA did this was not even really to collect the information. The FBI was already collecting the information. It was to satisfy that need for revenge from 9-11. 9-11 was the greatest intelligence failure in the history of our country. 3,000 Americans were killed because we had failed at our job. And so... Many in the CIA's leadership and in the CIA's counterterrorism center wanted revenge on the people who had done this to us. That's what it came down to. Now, one of the interesting things is the initial interview you gave, I think it was to ABC, was it? Yes. When asked that same question at the time, you said that it did work. Yes. What's the reason for the disparity there? Yeah, I'm glad that you asked that question. It's going to take me a minute to um, to explain, explain it. Yeah, so we've got nothing but time. One of the things, one of the the ongoing themes of the relationship between the CIA and the FBI is they've hated each other since the CIA was created with the National Security Act of 1947. J. Edgar Hoover, when he was the the director of the, he was the founder and director of the FBI, director for 48 years. 
He opposed the creation of the CIA until President Truman disingenuously told him that the CIA would be a division of the FBI. And so he raised, he, uh, sorry, he lifted his objection. Well, the, the National Security Act of 1947 created an independent uh, CIA and Hoover ordered the FBI to not cooperate with this new organization. That was 1947. That lasted until the 9-11 attacks, till after the 9-11 attacks. So here we are post 9-11, it's 2002, and the CIA and FBI computer systems are not compatible, right? So Ali Sufan is, is interrogating Abu Zubaydah, coming up with this wealth of information, dutifully reporting it back to the FBI at the end of every day. And the FBI is like, oh my God, look at all this great information we have. They never shared it with the CIA. It was compartmentalized, right? And their view was that 9-11 was an open criminal investigation. The FBI has primacy over international crimes and the CIA didn't have a need to know. Well, the CIA had come up with this enhanced interrogation program. It cost $108 million that they paid to two contract psychologists, uh, Mitchell and Jessen. Mitchell and Jessen convinced George Tenet to go to President Bush and convince President Bush to pull the FBI out of the secret site and to let the CIA take over the interrogations. For whatever reason, and he's never explained his actions, President Bush agreed to do that. And so on August 1st, the day that the president signed the, uh, the executive order allowing the torture program, uh, the CIA took over the interrogations and the FBI withdrew all of its personnel from the country, not from the secret prison, from the whole country because they knew what was coming and they didn't want to be, they didn't want to give the appearance of an association with this torture program. So they began torturing Abu Zubaydah on August the 2nd. 2002, um, they tortured him mercilessly and he immediately clammed up. So what Mitchell and Jessen did is they took Ali Sufan's reporting, they retyped it in the CIA system, and then we're receiving it at headquarters saying, oh my God, I told one of the guys who had gone through the training, I said, maybe... I was wrong about this. Look at the information that we, we waterboard him one time. They said we waterboard him one time and oh my God, he opened up and look what he gave us. And I'm like, holy shit. I said, I can't believe that he's given us all this information. Maybe I was wrong. Well, we didn't know that they had committed this fraud on the government until the CIA inspector general, uh, inspector general's report was released in April of 2009. So from 2002 to 2005, when the report was written, to 2009, if you, you didn't have access, like access. I didn't have access anymore, I had resigned in 2004. We believed that as horrible as it was, it had worked. So that's why I told Brian Ross at ABC News, I said, I, I thought it was torture. I said I said three things that 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 just changed the course of the rest of my life. I said the CIA was torturing its prisoners. I said that torture was official US government policy, not the result of a rogue. And that policy had been personally approved by the president. 
And as odious as it was, the reporting indicated that it had worked, not knowing that the reporting was fraudulent. It goes to show how good the CIA propaganda is that their propaganda can be used on their own people. On, I said that at the time. I said that at the time. They were propagandizing their own people. And, you know, I wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post uh, in 2017 or 18. It was when Gina Haspel was named CIA director. And I said that, that she was part of the internal propaganda network. She knew exactly what was happening because she was there at the secret site, sitting in the room, watching him be tortured. She was the one who, after the White House counsel specifically said, do not destroy the tapes of the torture sessions. She destroyed them anyway. She put them in an industrial grinder to make sure that no one would ever see those torture tapes. I think she needed Hillary's cleanup team. Maybe they would have done it a bit neater. I think so too. Um, but with that being said, part of the reason that you did blow the whistle was also because you felt in a way, potentially the walls were closing in on yourself. You'd yes. already been contacted by ABC. So as altruistic as it sounds, there is also a human element to you blowing the whistle as well. Oh, and yeah. then I want to also talk about the treatment of whistleblowers, both in the U S and outside of the U S sure. as well. But can you maybe, yeah, tell us you're, a little bit you're about exactly that? right about that. Um, like I said, I had this reputation as the human rights guy. And so when we're, I mean, word was leaking out that this torture program had existed. Human Rights Watch came out with a report. Uh, International Committee, the Red Cross had a report and Amnesty International had a report. And then there was a senior former CIA official who was working at the White House as a director for the National Security Council who was escorted out of the building and her badge was taken from her because she had blown the whistle on the secret prison system. Um. So the walls were closing in and Brian Ross called me from ABC. I had never, I had never spoken to a journalist before. And he said that he had a source who said that I had tortured Abu Zubaydah. I said, that was absolutely untrue that I had been kind to Abu Zubaydah. I was the only person who was kind to Abu Zubaydah and that I had never laid a hand on Abu Zubaydah or on any other prisoner. And he said, well, you're welcome to come on the show and defend yourself. This sort of sent me into a mental tailspin. Like, what do I do? I didn't know this was an old reporter's trick because I'd never spoken to a reporter before. I said, I'd think about it. A few days later, President uh, Bush is giving a press conference and somebody asked him about torture. And he looked right in the camera and he said, we do not torture, if you can hear that in, in George W. Bush's voice. And I said to my wife, who was also a senior CIA officer, I said, he is a bald-faced liar. He is looking the American people in the eye and he's lying to us. And then a few days later, it was a Friday afternoon, he was walking from the South Portico to the helicopter to go to Camp David for the weekend. And a reporter shouted a question about torture. And he turned and said, well, if there is torture, it's the result of a rogue CIA officer. And 
immediately I said to my wife, Brian Ross's sources at the White House, and they're going to try to pin this on me. So sure, I opposed the CIA's torture program, but I decided to do that interview to make it absolutely crystal clear that I was not the torturer. Uh, as a result of that, there was an FBI investigation into you that you weren't aware of. And at the end of that investigation, they realized that actually we kind of don't have a case here. So right. by the end of the Bush administration, you yes. were out scot-free. Scot-free. They walked away. Yeah. And then unbeknownst to yourself, the case was reopened under the Obama administration. And under the Obama administration, you had six, um, eight, six, eight, eight whistleblowers. I was the sixth. You were the sixth. That's the, that's the ticket. Eight different whistleblowers who were convicted under the Espionage Act or the Espionage Act was used and people's finances were drained in their defense and whatnot. And then slowly but surely, a couple of charges were dropped here and there. Right. And then people were convicted for other offenses as well. Um, but very briefly, how did that happen after you'd already, or after it had already been decided that we right. kind of don't have a case here? Right. So uh, that's that's kind of a sad a sad account of what happens in government. Uh, John Brennan was a longtime enemy of mine from CIA headquarters. He was he was involved in the torture program up to his neck. He was the deputy executive director at the time that I was uh, there. And uh, he, he actually had been my boss early in my career. We were colleagues when I first joined. He was a nobody. Well, John became the deputy national security um, advisor under Barack Obama, deputy national security advisor for counterterrorism. He was supposed to be the CIA director, but the the progressive wing of the Democratic Party objected because of his history with torture. So he became deputy national security advisor and just three weeks into the administration, asked the Justice Department to secretly reopen the case against me. Now, later on, I was arrested three years later. I had no idea that for three years, my phones were tapped, my emails were being intercepted, teams of FBI agents were following me and my family everywhere we went. No idea. And then um, when I was finally arrested, we received discovery from the Justice Department. They turned over 15,000 pages of classified documents. In those classified documents, one was a letter that Brennan wrote to Eric Holder, who was the Attorney General of the United States. And it said, among other things, it said, charge him with espionage. And Eric Holder wrote back and said, my people don't think he committed espionage. And Brennan wrote back and said, charge him anyway and make him defend himself. And so that's what they did. They charged me with five felonies, three counts of espionage. They waited until I went bankrupt. And then they dropped the espionage charges. You just alluded to that. And um, said they would drop uh, another charge if I agreed to plead guilty to violating the Intelligence Identities Protection Act of 1982. I had confirmed the name of a former colleague uh, to a reporter who never made the name public. Never. Mm. No damage, no victim. Um, I decided to turn that down. 
saying that once I got in front of a jury, they would see how ridiculous this is. And that the only reason that I'm being charged in the first place was because I embarrassed them by outing their torture program. One of my lawyers got right up into my face very angrily and said, you know what your problem is? Your problem is you think this is about justice and it's not about justice. It's about mitigating damage. Take the deal. And so after much how should I even say it? Uh, much discussion with my wife. I took the deal. I was facing 45 years in prison. I said to the lawyers, if I, if I turn the deal down and I'm convicted, realistically, what am I looking at? And they said, realistically, 12 to 18 years. And I was being offered 30 months of which I would serve 23. He said, take the deal. And so I did. But that's what they do. It's called charge stacking. They'll charge you with everything under the sun. And they'll agree to drop all the charges once you've gone bankrupt, if you just take a plea. It, it's similar to what they do with people who um, who decide to go by the Constitution and not pay taxes in the U.S. because constitutionally you don't have to, and then the IRS will come That's after right. you. And, uh, and there was no federal tax until the 1920s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, it... it it's not even malicious prosecution. It's just persecution at that point when they're purposefully trying to to just drain your bank accounts, to just take every bit of will out of you. And that kind of brings us on to how all whistleblowers are treated in the US. Now, we've got Snowden, who's who's had to seek refuge in Russia. Yes. Uh, we've had other whistleblowers who have taken their own lives as a result of the persecution that they've been under. Yes. Um, I'm surprised that hasn't happened more frequently to tell no you. absolutely i i mean it it becomes more and more difficult especially in the digital age that we're in now when when you blew the whistle that was back in 2004 um and oh sorry 2007 seven, seven. uh and there wasn't really a twitter there wasn't really a, a proper Facebook the way it is now. There was no social media where you'd be charged vitriol thrown at you every 30 seconds where you have no escape from the things going on around you. And in a way, having all this social media has helped some people because then you kind of get a trial in the court of public opinion which can help to shape the way things move mm -hmm. but at the same time that hasn't helped edward snowden that hasn't helped julian assange and i know some people don't think that snowden is a whistleblower in the truest sense but i personally feel that he is um mm -hmm what what is it that still drives people to do this and put everything out on the line because I, i've i've interviewed whistleblowers before on on this podcast and i've had other whistleblowers who unfortunately because their cases are ongoing were instructed by their lawyers not to engage That's just true. yet sure as you know situation you found yourself in before but mm -hmm. what the hell is it that keeps people going there's a fantastic book called Beautiful Souls, written by an Israeli journalist by the name of A.L. Press. And he examines this from a, from a psychological perspective. And one of the things that he found was that 
whistleblowers have an unusually clearly defined sense of right and wrong, far more clearly defined than the general public. Um, they tend to, <laughs> crazy as this sounds, they tend to not really consider their financial well-being when making their decision to go public. Or you can't, yeah. No, yeah, because you're you're going to lose everything, yeah. everything. Um, and this is another theme um, he that he found that um, they never work in their chosen field again, and they never make a financial comeback, no matter how hard they try. They never make a financial comeback. So really, it's this clearly defined sense of right and wrong, where you just can't live with yourself if you don't say something. You can't sleep at night if you don't say something. You know, one of the things that I think about all the time, and my friends and family always tell me, stop, just stop, is would my children be proud of me? You know, I've got five kids. And one of the reasons why I wrote my first book was I wanted, I wanted my grandchildren who may not, you know, know me, they may come after I'm gone or whatever. I wanted to leave a legacy so they knew who I was. And I wanted them to be proud of me that from a historical perspective, to know that I made the right decision. You know, I, I what it, blowing the whistle when I did was an extraordinarily unpopular thing to do. I can't tell you how many death threats I got to the point where with one of them, the FBI um, recommended that we leave our house for a week. My wife and, and I took the kids to, to Mexico for a week Jeez. because we, we had to get out of the house. This, this crazy person was coming from Oakland, California to kill me. So, you know, in retrospect, this is why I said to you at the beginning of the podcast that I have no regrets, none. I don't care. You know, I, I'm, I'm very happy to say that I've gotten to a point in my life where I genuinely don't care what people think about me. You know, if they, oh, you're a traitor. Okay. Well, you've clearly never read the constitution because the constitution actually defines treason and you obviously don't know what you're talking about. You know, so I, I have no regrets. I did the right thing. I'm glad I did it. And I'll tell you, whistleblowers or would-be whistleblowers call me all the time and ask for advice. And the advice that I give them is always the same. The big mistake that I made was I should have hired an attorney before giving that interview. And I didn't. And so I hired one after giving the interview and I had to be reactive when I should have been proactive. That was a mistake. So I said, have someone who specializes in whistleblower defense sitting next to you in the chair and advising you as you do this, because there's, there's a way to do it to still protect yourself. And then there's a way to do it where you're going to go to prison or you're going to have to run or, you know, something really totally terrible exposed. what's happening to Julian Assange. Yeah. Yeah. And so you've mentioned you had death threats, um, you know, you're also quite a public figure. You've given talks. You've received awards for the work that you've done for, for blowing the whistle. You're also radio, TV, columns and whatnot. In a way, you've had some bounce back. Mm -hmm. What was it like in the initial years and also coming out of prison? Because those are often aspects of whistleblowing that people don't talk about. Everyone's aware of what's happening with yeah. their julian and edward snowden right. um but then for other folks um once their main story blows over 
they're kind of lost to the wind. The godfather of all national security whistleblowers is Daniel Ellsberg. And yes. uh, Dan blew the whistle on the, uh, he released the Pentagon Papers, which showed that the the Pentagon and the White House were lying to the American people about the Vietnam War. Dan sort of took me under his wing um, early on. And one of the things that was hardest at first was struggling with uh, with depression, right? The whole weight of the U.S. government is falling on your head. I was looking at 45 years in prison. And so like people had to actively work to help me not commit suicide for that first year. Prison was the easy part. I was in a low security prison. It was Groundhog Day every single day. I read more than I've ever read in my life. I wrote a book, uh, Doing Time Like a Spy, How the CIA Taught Me to Survive and Thrive in Prison, which did very well. And um, and then I got out. Um, getting out was even more stressful than going in. That's something that they don't tell you. The, the post-traumatic stress uh, disorder is sometimes overwhelming. It got to the point where my my wife, who was a, a rock of support for me uh, through this whole nightmare, uh, ran off with a coworker and, uh, and we divorced. And, uh, you know, getting a job, I, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't find a job anywhere. I'm a, I'm a convicted felon. I, I was rejected by grocery stores, by department stores. I was rejected by McDonald's and then finally got a job at a progressive think tank here in Washington, but I had to raise the money for my salary. So I was only making the federal minimum wage. And so it took me, it took me years to rebuild. Uh, I will say that you know, one of the one of the most insightful things my wife said to me in this whole process, it was right after my arrest. She said, well, you don't have to hide your politics anymore. And she was right. That's a bonus. And so I've spoken my mind ever since then. Uh, it got to the point where I've got a, a group of dedicated followers. I write constantly. Um, so I've got my radio show. I have a TV show. I have two syndicated columns, one in, in Covert Action Magazine and the other at Consortium News. Uh, I, I've consulted on a dozen different Hollywood movies and, and TV series. I'm doing one right now for CBS that's coming out in, uh, in March. Uh, I speak at universities and colleges all around the country. And so, you know, I've been able to put together actually a pretty good living, but I'm, I'm the exception uh, to the rule. Uh. Absolutely. It's, it's harder even for other people. You mentioned there Ellsberg, the Vietnam War, and something that came out officially a lot later was the NSA papers around the Gulf of Tonkin, which yes. just further bolstered the information that Daniel Ellsberg had, had leaked in that the US mm -hmm. government was lying to the citizens. Now, we've also got Operation Northwoods, we've got the Tuskegee Experiment, we've got yep. Operation Midnight Climax, we've got Prism, Stellar Wind, Blue Book, yep. Mockingbird, which yep. um, as a, yeah, a journalist, CIA, yeah, paperclip. Um, mm -hmm. But the Mockingbird one as a journalist, someone from the CIA and someone who also does work in in, in Hollywood is a, an interesting one. I forget the name of uh, the equivalent 
for Mockingbird in cinema and uh, TV and film. But well, I'll tell you, they've they've gone public with that now. Huh. Um, now they have a dedicated unit within the CIA's Office of Public Affairs, whose sole job it is to cooperate with um, with Hollywood uh, film studios and TV networks. That's in, all they do. In the vein of propaganda or in the vein Absolutely. of- Absolutely. Have you ever seen a, a movie or TV show in the United States or, or created in the United States that makes the CIA look bad? <sighs> I mean, this is something that the, that the FBI was doing in the 50s. The 50s, you know, up until today, the CIA just got with the program in the last 15 years. But then, true. But then we've got Inkitel's investments into Facebook, yes. Google, that's, Apple. That's one of the scariest parts. Right. Is Inkutel. So the, this is, this list doesn't even begin to scratch uh, an no, atom in the surface of the table of, of what right. we have. That's just what's been released. And to the the reason I bring this up is governments have a habit of lying to people. Governments have a habit of massaging the truth or making it look in a particular light or in a particular way. The response to 2001 in how quickly everything was confirmed as Al-Qaeda, and I, you can see where I'm going with this. As someone who is in the CIA, I know there's also only a certain amount that you can say, but how much of what we were told do you believe as to be the truth and how much of what we were told was propaganda in order to get us into different places? Because if even if we look at weapons of mass destruction, it was another excuse for Junior to finish off what Senior's war started in the 90s. Without any question. Um, I, I believe, and I'm, I'm going to take a lot of heat for this, and I don't care. Um, I believe very strongly that Al-Qaeda attacked us on 9-11. Solely them. There was no external Solely help. Them. No. It was Al-Qaeda. We knew it was coming. We didn't know where. We didn't know what the target was going to be. We knew it was going to be huge. We just never dreamt that it would be on U.S. soil. We thought it was going to be simultaneous embassy attacks, for example something like the USS Cole maybe, but not the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. But then if we take something like the Pentagon, no proper footage has been released from it. Yeah, but the, what, the, what footage are you expecting? Something that shows more than just two frames. And also there was no fuselage um, wreckage at the Pentagon either even with the World Trade Center, as they were cleaning that up, there were elements of the fuselage of the plane that, that was being found, that mm -hmm. the Pentagon's, uh, at least to, to my knowledge, the only plane crash site where there was no plane to be found. So for me, no, but they found, as much they, as... They found the engine, they found the black box, um, they found bits and pieces of people, it, if if you're if you're leading to it was a missile, no, it wasn't. There were thousands of people stuck in rush hour traffic that morning that watched that plane fly into the side of the Pentagon. There are also reports of people that say there was no plane. It, it yeah, it 
it's one of those things where again there are also people who say that they were abducted by aliens i mean seriously come on operation blue book uh, <laughs> but um it, and what happened to all the people that were on the plane no no i i that one i don't I mean, know just, the, with the, with they're the all in on the conspiracy and, uh, i mean when you look at something like operation northwards and what northwards was and what northwards was meant to be so for people listening who are unaware operation northwards was an excuse for the us to go to war with cuba there was also the whole bay of pig situation but operation northwards was uh, proposed to jfk as what we can do is we can say the planes were hijacked we'll take them off land them at a us airbase send them back up as remote controlled drones and then crash those planes and those planes would have initially been filled with uh, personnel rather than uh, the general citizens citizenry so there are elements of where pieces of this potentially could have been possible now by no means am i saying the planes that went into the trade centers world trade centers anything like that i don't want to um put a blemish on on those people's memories but there are elements because of the fact that the government has lied to us so frequently so often across the globe multiple reasons as to why they wanted to go to war then we've also got the whole five countries in five years that came out later as well when you look at that stacked up with everything that happened and how quickly all the information kind of span around and all the hiccups that were there between the intelligence services it does it does bring the question up as to if there was more at play there the only planes to leave u.s airspace were ones carrying the bin laden family oh yeah i i remember that you know? uh, very very well it's because you know the bin laden family the, i mean this is a very important family it's in one saudi of the wealthiest arabia. in saudi arabia they all own real estate here in the united states they were all supportive of the american government i can't begin to tell you how many members of the of the bin laden family reached out to the cia and volunteered to help us what can we do to help they we even said, volunteered dna us, samples right give us dna samples so if we kill him and we you know blow him to bits we can at least test the dna and make sure it's him um, the Bin Ladens are in Beverly Hills. They're in Orlando, Florida. They're in Georgetown. They're in New York. They're, the Bin Ladens are all over America. There are hundreds of them. And President Bush said immediately after 9-11, we have to get every one of these people out of the country or they're going to be targets for, for attack. And so that's what he did. Yeah, I'm with it. I get it. But at the same time, there is a very big part of me that is hesitant to believe what the administration's put out there. When you stack everything up with what's happened in the past as well. Sure. That's why we have to do our own analysis and come to our own conclusions. You're never going to get what what you believe is the straight story from the government, from any government. We're still having a debate just this week over release of, of documents related to the Kennedy assassination. We're never going to get the story. It will never, ever be released. Never.
Oh, you have a government that's either crying wolf or coming up with these cockamamie operations over the years, then you're going to create a citizenry that just doesn't believe what you say. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, and that's kind of one of the other elements of the CIA, right? They are the people that coined the term conspiracy theory, and sure. they have expressly put out a lot of dis and misinformation mm -hmm. so that, like you say, the cockamamie um, missions that they produced, there's also cockamamie ideas that come out so that if there's a grain of truth in something, it's surrounded by a big pile of feces. Right. And, you know, the CIA have done so very well with that. And, and yes, when you look at the have. Twitter files as well, it's it's also something where there's all this government collaboration that's come out um, of what they've been doing, of of what's happened. And yeah, it makes, like you say, it, it, it does make things difficult. It does. But look, John, um, it's been absolutely fantastic getting to talk to you. I really Pleasure appreciate your time. You. I know we've, we've kind of gone over. Um, have you got any last little bits that you'd like to say to the audience? I would reiterate uh, what what you said, where, you know, we, we have to educate ourselves on these issues. Look at history. Uh, look at the uh, these different operations that the CIA enacted or tried to uh, carry out over the course of years, and then pay very close attention to the revelations of the Church Committee and the Pike Committee in 1975. Uh, there's a lot of really great reporting out there. Um, you know, take a look. Take a look at uh, Wiener's book about uh, about the CIA and the rise and fall of the CIA that was republished that was published in the uh, nineteen late nineteen eighties. It's still out there. There's a lot of really great reporting. Uh, was it Roosevelt that said, um, <laughs> "There's no surprises to someone who studied history. It only repeats itself." Something along those right. lines, something to that That's effect. Right. But thank you very much. Thank um, you. Really appreciate your time.